Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Welcome new listeners to I Seem Fun, the Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast. I have been doing this podcast since April of 2013 and I have always been a podcast fanatic. I love listening to podcasts. I love hearing people talk about their lives. And the reason I started this podcast was at the time I was on a TV show called Chelsea Lately, where I was appearing nightly, making jokes about celebrities. And then people could also see me on Drunk History, where I was getting wasted talking about history. And nobody really seemed to know who I was. Did they think people thought I was drunk like that all the time? Or they thought, oh, Jen only cares about Lindsay Lohan. And I felt like, you know what? I really want people to know who I am. And unfortunately, when I was on the road a lot, people would be at my shows screaming out, let's get drunk or whatever. And I thought, oh, they don't really know me. I'm not that fun. And so as a joke, I said, I'm going to do a podcast called I Seem Fun, meaning, but I'm not. And then I called it the Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast because it was supposed to be a once a week and it still is solo podcast where I talk about what went on with me during the week, whether it's serious or silly you know, kind of curmudgeon complaining, whether it's something going on in the world, something political. I've cried on this podcast. I've taken you guys deep into my life, breakups and get-back-togethers and family stuff. It's just like your friend talking to you who's rude and doesn't let you get a word in edgewise. And it's off the top of my head every week. I prepare briefly the topics I want to talk about, but that's it. It's just a fun free-for-all where you can just see the real me. And, uh, I hope you enjoy it. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can listen on Google Play. You can listen on Stitcher. You can listen on SoundCloud. And uh, I'll give you a review from the Onion AV Club. What makes I Seem Fun? The Diary of Jen Cockman. Co- See, I can't even advertise my own fucking show. What makes I Seem Fun? The Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast funny is Kirkman's inherent knack for cultivating conflict, even talking into a microphone in a room by herself. Whether she's dissecting a negative iTunes review from an angry Christian or seriously considering a class action lawsuit against Robin Thicke for being gross, Kirkman is eternally embattled, but she tempers her cynicism with sweetness, and more often than not, she's right. That is from the Onion AV Club. So if you're curious, well, I guess you can start with this episode and go through the backlog. 
If you want to stay, here comes the podcast you're about to get on the ride. I see fun. I see fun. The Diary of Jack Kirkman I seem fun, the Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast, episode 244. This episode's brought to you by Quip, Quip Toothbrushes, and Talkspace, the online therapy company. We'll hear more about those great people later. Hang on one sec. Hang on one sec. All right. Coming to you from Brooklyn. Oh, folks. Uh, I'm recording this very last minute. It's not how JK likes to do things. I'm in uh, my favorite Airbnb because um, I love this woman's apartment. But I am leaving it next week to be in a different place in Williamsburg. I'm not in Williamsburg right now. I'm in a different part of Brooklyn. But I'm actually glad to be leaving because as much as I love her place, there is a child upstairs. It's about a four-year-old toddler. And I just, I'll never understand it. This is, I used to live in West Hollywood and in the apartment above me, there was a child, hardwood floors. And it was like, literally, literally from 6 a.m. until 8 a.m. nonstop. That's like nothing. It was like this. Just that. And I'm a hundred and pound woman. So when I run... makes that weight sound. But why when a four-year-old is it so heavy? Like, are, is, <laughs> why are they so powerful? And, and it's two hours of running. Not like, oh, over the course of two hours, I heard running for three minutes at a time. No, no, literally 120 minutes nonstop. And it sounds like someone has bowling balls on their feet and they're running around. <sighs> and then it's at night when I get home from work, anywhere between seven and eight. it's until about nine o'clock at night and it's happening right now. And I had not to deal with it. So I've been out of the house from about seven thirty in the morning until about 10 at night every day, even week. And that's just a lot. It's, oh, my recorder stopped recording. Oh, I'm, I'm bitchy. I'm bitchy. But I'm wondering, parents, why, parents, please write to me about if you live in an apartment building where someone lives under you, like, do you ever think about how loud the kid is? Because there's nothing the person below you can do. And I wrote about this in my book. I can barely take care of myself. Somebody told me to walk around in my house in noise-canceling headphones. I'm like, oh, that's fun. Should I lay in bed with them on too? Because that's fun. It's not about, there's no way to not hear it. So this is what I do in the morning. I put the air conditioning on in the bedroom and it's like very loud. And then I put a white noise app on my phone and I put that under the pillow. I put one ear plug in and I lay the other ear down on the side and then I shut the bedroom door. And all that, I can just sort of tell in the far off distance, almost like rolling thunder, that there's noise. But people, there's no good way without inconveniencing myself with other things, you know, devices plugged in. I'm not looking for ways to not hear it. I don't care. If anyone gives me advice, I'll delete it. Because by the time you send it, I won't be here anymore anyway. Um, and the place I'm staying, I'm on the top floor. So it's not happening again. But what I'm asking is, truly, why do children sound like elephants? <laughs> what is this? Why? And what are they doing? Like, it's been so long since I've been a kid. And I used to babysit um, 
for years, like five years at least, every Friday night. I don't, that was a lot of fun. I don't remember, and afternoons too, after school sometimes, I truly don't remember a child running around like that. Like I, is it, well, I was in the suburbs. So maybe when the kids were home, they ran outside. And when they were in the house, like there was such a clear delineation. Like we don't run in the house. You have a yard front and back and you run around and you run around on the sidewalk and you run around, you know, it was just a different world. And I wasn't in a city. So maybe it's different because I've only experienced this in cities like West Hollywood there's no yard. We didn't have a yard. There's no yard here. Actually, there is. And the kid was running in it at 6.30 a.m. with three friends, and they were screaming. It was like the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. I know that's a hacky reference. That was like what every comedian said and every sitcom said. But it's a very funny reference, I still think, to whenever there's just like 20 fucking straight minutes of like trauma. I woke up, and I was like, oh, oh And it was just like, ah! It was like that from three, like, it was insanity. So they do have a yard. Um, but I guess it's a thing of like, you don't have a yard and I know the parents want the kid to get tired out. So running in the house is completely allowed between six and 8 PM because you want that thing to wind down. But what I'm not understanding is why did their bodies make so much impact? They're so tiny. Why do I hear them like a herd of elephants? Someone explain it to me. And do they have any idea? Because what's so funny is the girl that lives here, they're um, raising the rent and they're showing the apartment. So I have to like sort of live as though there isn't an Airbnb person here. And what I'm wondering is when they're showing the place, can you hear the kid upstairs running around? Because it's summer now and the kid's not in school. So, I mean, I don't think the kid's old enough for school anyway, but whatever kind of day situation, like the kids running around all day now. Cause why well, I was staying here in the winter before I can hear the noise. I'm wearing headphones right now and talking into a thing. It is piercing through my body. The sound of the child running. It's like reverberating. Like I can't, I can't, it's the most disturbing noise. It's just like a pounding. It's like a pounding. Stop the hammering. Remember that on Lawrence O'Donnell? Stop the hammering. Um, I don't even watch Lawrence O'Donnell. Not that I wouldn't. I just, you know. All right, let's get the politics out of the way. Last week, I was like, guys, it's happening. The left is, uh, Bernie's left is acting as though Democrats want different things than he does. We want health care. This woman, you might have heard of her, Hillary Clinton, tried to pass universal health care when she was first lady. That's like a pretty fucking badass on the socialist scale move. And then she got healthcare for kids. So yeah, there's that. Um, we are, Democrats have been painted as, uh, these demonic, you know, um, left wing, you know, by the Republicans for so many years, like we've been painted as these left wing wild people. Everyone's having an abortion. Everyone's being gay and getting married. You know, that's, we're the party of all that. Right. And, um, and it truly is a party, isn't it? Gang? And so, but now Bernie coming in going, they don't care about healthcare. It's like, yeah, we do. Like we're grownups. So if you look at any Democrats webpage, it's like healthcare, minimum wage, you know, but what Bernie doesn't seem to get is that all economic issues are from racism and sexism. So we just fixing 
economics does not fix racism and sexism. So that's a an old Marxist concept that he is wrong about for this country. The second thing is um, there is a way that capitalism and socialism can work together because capitalism can actually benefit women and minorities in ways that sometimes just socialism cannot. Second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, Bernie is running this false campaign that Democrats are not left enough or not to the left enough. That's not true. He is actively campaigning against Democrats. That is not normal behavior from someone who really cares. And yes, every once in a while he makes a speech, um, Donald Trump shouldn't have colluded with Russia. Sure. That doesn't mean he's not doing something shady as well. It's called controlled opposition. It's a thing. Um, One of Bernie's former campaign workers worked on this woman's campaign in Russia who was running against Putin. She was the controlled opposition. Um, She knew and her campaign managers knew she's not going to win. So, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just losing my mind here because they've painted the dichotomy and they've done it so subtly. I was watching it like Danny Noonan watching that ball at the end of the Caddyshack. I told you guys in 2016, wait till midterms, this is happening again. It's happening right now. And it's gunned up and ginned up and revving up and I'm having like a fucking meltdown and I can't think about much else. So it's happening again. I'm getting all the same trolls and bots and people um, who actually, what's scaring the fuck out of me is that there's this cool little link and you can use it to check if someone writing you is a bot or a troll. And, uh, the people writing me are coming up as not. And so these are just completely brainwashed people calling me a corporatist. Legit, you guys, he owns three houses. Is that bad? No, but please stop telling me I'm the rich corporatist. He's literally in the 1%. I am not. So back off. And you know why he is if it's not shady? Because he's 76. You live long enough, you'll make some money. So that's my case too. I may have more money than a 20-year-old because I'm 40 fucking four. You know what I'm saying? Is that because I'm out of touch? I, I can't. I can't go through this again, you guys. Rewind the podcast to 26. I cannot go through this again, and it's happening. And I cannot give up the fight because I feel like I'm one of the only people talking. And I, I, I can't, you guys. So since last week, the Tad Devine stuff came up, Tad Devine or whatever his name is. It's in, let me explain this to you. So the Manafort indictment, Robert Mueller chose to release some of the things that they'll be talking to Mr. Paul Manafort about on his trial, which just got moved to the 31st. Robert Mueller released screenshots of 500 emails, like the subject heading. 16 of those emails are from Tad Devine to Manafort to this Kalimnik guy, Konstantin Kalimnik. Yes, some of them are from way back in 2006 when... Tad Devine worked with Paul Manafort to elect a Putin puppet to the Ukraine. Not great. Not a great quality. Does it mean he colluded with Russia for Bernie? No. It does not mean it, though. And then in 2014, they were still emailing right before he started working on Bernie's campaign, okay? Him and Manafort, I mean, look at the campaigns. Trump and Bernie had such similar campaigns. Um, I, I can't get into it, you guys. I'm going to have a fucking flip out because it just... Nobody is listening. And I believe I was proven right last time when the states that he was campaigning for, it was really against Trump, but he was also campaigning against Hillary as well. Um, The states that they're like, she didn't go to that state. That's why she lost. It's like, okay. Also, she was like campaigning 
back in a time in her head when you had to do Florida a lot, right? And we were going to flip Texas and she went there a lot. It was like, she didn't think she had to go to the places that I can't get into it, you guys. I'm going to fucking lose it. But all those places went for Jill Stein. They went for Bernie. Oh, God. I'm going to lose my shit. So I just wish anyone would believe me because I was radicalized at one point. And some of my listeners can remember. So it happened to me. And I've come out the other side of the cult. Like, this literally has nothing to do with Hillary. I don't care. I'm sure Bill Clinton was on the Epstein sex jet. I'm sure Bill Clinton is going to come down on all of this. Like he's on the outskirts of this crazy, like oligarch pedophilia bullshit. Like Bill Clinton's like probably a really bad guy. Is he a pedophile? I, I don't, I hope not. Um, I don't know what kind of shenanigans he was up to. No clue, but I'll believe it when it comes out. Um, and I don't mean that like combatively. I mean, I will, I very much believe in this investigation and I know that it's going to, but what's, what's bothering me is no one in the mainstream media talked about Tad Devine. I mean, it's such a big deal. And yet now, John Podesta, um, they are... See, I'm even confusing it. Which one was Hillary's campaign manager? Hang on one sec. Hillary's campaign manager was John Podesta. His brother, Tony, is kind of tied up in this... Um, some bullshit. And I don't have the exact things. That's why I'm not saying it. Uh, cause I don't want to make it sound worse than it is or not as bad, but, um, John Podesta's brother who has nothing to do with John Podesta is caught up in like some aspect of this, like over here to the, the side. And everyone's just writing like Hillary's campaign manager. It's like, no, no, not her campaign manager. So there's going to be a lot of saying, Oh, everyone was in on it. And so I'm just losing my mind because that's not the case. Like, and there, everyone's talking point is Tad Devine. Um, he he did Manafort. Uh, he did um, Gore and Kerry's campaigns. Um, so was he trying to throw it? And it's like, well, those are pretty winnable campaigns. I mean, Al Gore was told by Tad Devine, Devine you know, separate yourself from Bill Clinton because we got Bush running and everyone's going to say, oh, it's just Bush and Clinton, Bush and Clinton. They have these dynasties. You know, we've already had George Bush, you know? Um, and then the other people will say, well, we've already had Bill Clinton, so we don't need Al Gore. And it's like, well, that's not quite the same as father and son. It's like vice president and president. That happens all the time. It happened with Reagan and Bush, you know? Um, and it was like oddly Tad Devine that put that um, sentiment out there. And also at one point, Tad Devine was a fan of Ralph Nader and Nader was the spoiler in 2000. And then Tad Devine was the one that recommended to Gore, like, let's just call off the vote count, like, fuck it. And the Supreme Court threw it to Bush. So that was a weird election. 2004, everyone was like, we, you know, we've come around the other side. There was a lot of like support for Bush 9-11, the country's united. Now they're in Iraq and now everyone's upset and more people are registering to vote and blah, blah, blah. And we got John Kerry and he's a, he's a veteran and like, okay, that's a little something for everybody here. And he loses because suddenly some weird states that it's like, I've heard that Tad Bean has been possibly shady his whole life. Um, 
And you know, I love my Al Gore. I read to you from the Assault on Reason. And I've been finding out some things uh, about Al Gore, that he has had shady connections forever. And he might be uh, one of these, I don't know if it's like they're trying to like throw, like, throw off America, but it's like, it's that egoism of like, this is how things should be. And I don't care if there's like some weird revolution where the right wing Trump Trumpers take over in the meantime. Like, I don't know. I've just heard some shady things about Gore. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Then Gore's dropped. Like Gore, no longer my hero. Kucinich was a hero to me. Not anymore. Bernie, not anymore. Like I'm just like a strict, um, democracy freak, you know, I think it's the thing that works for everybody. And if somebody's shady, um, on those tips, like, bye, just like, it's very easy for me. Cause I don't get attached to cult of personalities. I did. And then I realized I was being stupid. And then I realized what are my values and how do we get there? And if I want to blow everything up and have a revolution, how much of that is privilege? Um, blah, 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 blah. So it's like, I've just sort of grown up. And when I see people still acting this way, most of them are younger than me. It's just like, it's so maddening. I'm begging people, like, please, who can you trust if not someone that actually has gone through this already and has been like, oh, fuck, I made a huge mistake. As you can see, I'm not like attaching myself to any person. There's no person that I'm like running with here. I'm just saying like, we, we have to get, if you care about getting healthcare at some point, we have to vote blue no matter who, get everybody out. And then Democrats together will impeach. But until then, Trump is actively working to dismantle democracy. And it can be done because the GOP is not doing anything. So I'm, I'm trying to explain to everyone, like, it's happening slowly before our eyes. And if our notion is that it's this big swing with the blue wave, then we have to be really careful that I also don't want to get a bunch of Democrats in that are going to go, okay, well, we need health care, so let's start working on that. It's like, well, can you impeach the motherfucker? No, people need health care. That's not the order of things. And I'm sorry, but it's not the fucking order of things. And you can call me a corporatist all you want, but you cannot have a functioning democracy where we're going to vote on health care when Donald Trump is the president. Like, it's not a thing, people you got to get it around your fucking heads. And I know that that's not a kind way to talk to people when you want them to listen to you. And I am sorry that I went on a political rant in the first 15 minutes of this podcast because I really don't want to talk about this because I'm so fired up that I can barely bear articulate. It's why I would read you guys articles last year um, or in 2016 begging you not to vote third party. And um, if I can find some things to read you guys... I will do it nowadays. So I'm really sorry. All right. I had a wonderful show in Brooklyn um, the Sunday night, the 22nd. And it was very interesting. Like I was a little nervous because it was a small space, Union Hall. And I'm like, has everyone seen me before? Some people listen to the podcast. Some people don't. Did you see me at Caroline's? Did you see me over here? So I tried to do as much new stuff as possible, but at a certain point, I can't just do like a new hour every 10 minutes, but I told some stories. We had some fun and it's really cool. Like I can't believe I still get laughs on stuff that's not that worked out. And it just shows that 
uh, I could take it to mean I'm a brilliant genius, which, you know, probably. But no, I really, what it really means is like audiences really are so much more sophisticated now in the sense that like a good old fashioned joke will still get you every time gets me too. And yet you're also trained now to listen to stories and like hear the nuance and like kind of picture it in your head. I think it's really cool. Like just overall, like comedy has been become super narrative. And I just think that it, I don't know, it's just been really cool to experience. And the audience, I was getting very emotional because my friend Brooke Van Poplin, very funny comedian and friend of mine, she happened to be in town. She used to live in New York. She moved to LA. Now she's back in New York and uh, you know, just for the weekend. And uh, she was like, let's get dinner. Let's hang. I'm like, ah, I've got this show. Do you want to jump on it? And she was doing this really funny story about changing her hair um, in order to feel better about some other bigger issue in her life. And then it was just, it was just like a journey through like doing some crazy thing to her hair. Um, and I was walking, like I was in the actual showroom um, and I was standing in the back watching and I was watching men like laugh. And I know that sounds stupid, but I was getting emotional because I was thinking, this is so fucking cool because I pitch TV shows all the time. You know, I was just in London pitching a show. It went really well. Um, I, that's all I can say. Uh, but some of the networks I pitched were uh, dum-dums and some of them would still say things to me like, well, we don't have a lot of women that watch this channel. So I don't know if we would buy your show because, um, and I'm like, no, I get it. But if you put a show on that women will watch, then women will watch it. Like there's this notion that networks still have that people are loyal to their network. And it's like your demo of men watching are watching because the shows appeal to men in that age range. But if you put on a show that appealed to women or penguins, then those people would watch. But, and penguins isn't a type of person. I was really just saying penguins like the animal in case you're like, what's a penguin? Um, so and also men watch shit that women say, like there's literally people that run networks that still think that because men age 18 to 34 are watching their channel, that they can only watch stuff about men ages 18 to 34. I'm like, oh, yeah. it's so annoying. So, you know, when you look at culture, you know, I grew up watching Wonder Years. I grew up watching shows that had a boy point of view, but it was what was thought of as universal. You know, a boy's experience is universal. A woman's experience only appeals to women. And it's just so not true. And also a boy's experience isn't always universal. Um, and women's experiences can very often be universal. Duh, we're humans. So it just depends on the human that's watching the show and the human story that's being told. Um, so I know it sounds weird to be getting emotional in the back of a showroom that men are laughing at my lady a comedian friend who's talking about her hair. But I was like, that's a big deal. Like there was a time when men were conditioned and God bless. I have all the empathy. I'm not saying it's your fault. You're a bunch of dicks. I'm saying like there was a time when that wouldn't even be considered appropriate. It would be like the men would just turn off and not want to listen. And it would just be like, why do I care? This isn't my experience. So I just love it. Um, so I mentioned it on stage and the audience was like, woo! I was like, I just love that like you guys were talking about, you know, that Brooke was talking about hair and that you guys were into it. And then like I was on stage and I came out and this girl goes, you look great. And it was like, 
so funny and cute. And there was just this sort of love fest feeling in the audience. And I really was overwhelmingly a love fest. And I don't even mean, oh, they were laughing at me. It was like beyond laughter. It was beyond laughter into love, the Jen Kirkman story. And oh my God, those are two great titles. Why do children sound like elephants and beyond laughter into love? How's this? Okay, I might call this episode Choose Your Own Title and then mention in the description that I either wanted to name this episode Why Do Children Sound Like Elephants or Beyond Laughter Into Love. And I want you guys to vote on what title you want this episode to be called and then I will change the title of it. So this is how you vote. You go to your Twitter account and you go to at I Seem Fun Podcast and you tweet me, you either like the title for episode 244 to be Why Do Children Sound Like Elephants or Beyond Laughter Into Love. It is the first I Seem Fun episode title naming competition. Or you can go to the evil Facebook, facebook.com slash I Seem Fun Podcast, and you can vote there too. Um, that's also where you can vote. So uh, that's the deal. And, um, please do, because I'm going to be so excited checking this. And if it's on my Instagram, you can write it there too. So don't forget to go do that, you guys. So what was I saying? Oh, so I want to talk about, uh, it was, oh, so I was talking to people after the show and they were like, you know, it's just so crazy going. So like last year, people were like, we just need to laugh, you know? And then this year, People are like, it's way beyond we just need to laugh. And it's like, we just need some comfort and we just need some kindness and we just need the hugs. And so I was thinking, oh, good. Because whenever people are like, I just want to laugh. I'm like, I get that you want to laugh, but then that means I have to do some math and create a joke, which is really just a math quiz. Um, And I'm upset. You know, the world upsets me. Why do I have to make you laugh? And so, cause I don't like laughter when I'm upset. I'm a weirdo that way. And so I'm like, oh, maybe there'll be this whole new wave of comedy when we're just on stage saying kind things <laughs> and I don't have to write punchlines. And I'm like, Jen, why are you always trying to get around doing your job? I don't know. Aren't we all, um, aren't we fucking all? So anyways, everybody, um, What was I going to say? Oh, this is what I was going to say. Everybody, this is what I was going to say. I am here in New York with my stuff. I packed a lot of stuff because I hate not having my stuff. And I do not have a travel toothbrush. Like, I don't use these, you know... um, I don't have separate travel toothbrushes or things like that. I use my favorite toothbrush. It's a whole system. I mean, it's not just a toothbrush, but I use Quip and I love it. So Quip is a sponsor of the I Seem Fun podcast. Everybody go to getquip.com slash fun right now. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash fun. And you can read all about my favorite 
toothbrush. It is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of uh, vibrations into a slimmer design at the fraction of a cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. I'm telling you, I used to have one of the bulkier brushes. I hated it. It was very heavy in my hand. This is slim. It is, I'm not going to give you dimensions because I don't know. I'm not good with numbers, but you know, almost like a little thicker than like, I'm not even going to say it because why did you say that? It, it's great. And it's very slim and I've got a rose gold one and it comes with its own cover, which you can also stick onto your um, mirror, but not in a way that something's sticky and it fucks up your mirror. Like it's genius. I don't know how it works. And I just have my little toothbrush like hanging off my mirror. It looks so sleek and it pulses so that it guides you. So you brush in this corner and the pulsing stops and then you know you move to the next corner and it, you switch sides making brushing the right amount completely effortless. Um, yeah, it comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel any, anywhere. And because your mouth needs to be clean on a specific every three-month basis, their subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule. They will deliver new brush heads every three months for just $5. That's free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and students. Most toothbrushes don't get named one of the Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did. And it's also one of Oprah's favorite things from 2017. Getquip.com slash fun. And this is what's going to happen for you. It starts at just $25, but if you go to getquip.com slash fun, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. First refill pack free at getquip.com slash fun and use offer code fun. Getquip.com slash fun. Be like me, use it. It looks really cute. And brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your health. Seriously, it's linked to heart disease if you've got a dirty mouth. So don't be that person. All right, folks, getquip.com slash fun. Fun, fun, fun. Okay. And there's no charger either. It's, you're going to love it. It's so sleek. I'm telling you guys. And you don't have to think about, would you ever know when three months has gone by in your toothbrush? Of course you don't. You're a busy person. I just love it. Shows up. I'm like, holy shit, it's been three months. Anyway. So send an email to iseemfun at gmail.com. Not if you send me an email about Bernie, I'll delete you. I'll delete you from everything. I will call your job and have you deleted. Um, I also want to mention one of our sponsors that I love that was uh, advertised last week, RX Bars. Now, we're not doing an official ad for them, but they do have new flavors. And so I highly recommend um, that you check out RX Bars. And so I'm not going to do a full ad, but I will just remind you guys that if you go to rxbar.com slash I seem fun and enter I seem fun at checkout, you'll get 25% off your first order. And some of their awesome new flavors are um, mango pineapple, chocolate hazelnut, peanut butter and berries, chocolate sea salt, apple cinnamon, peanut butter, peanut butter chocolate, coffee chocolate, blueberry, maple sea salt, mint chocolate, chocolate chip. It's great. So 
rxbar.com slash fun. Just a little extra shout out for them this week. And the unique code is fun that you will use at checkout for 25% off. Be like me. Carry these bars in your pocket. Don't walk around the earth just grabbing slices of pizza everywhere. All right, everybody. All right. So I wanted to read this interesting thing about um, Queer Eye because I love the show. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, I know the f- we've talked about this. Like, the first iteration of the show was, you know, hey, look, like, gay people are people, you know, it's like, you know, for mainstream America and we can get married. And then there was this sort of, you know, the new queer eye is, I would say even gayer than the first one. Like, I think it's a little more flamboyant. I think it's a little more, um, embracing of like the kind of anti-toxic masculinity <clears throat> and and it's not about uh like look we're just like you it's almost like we're not like you but we are you know that kind of thing but what was so I, I mean there's all kinds of opinions on you know like why don't they have a gay guy that doesn't look like a model and why don't they have this and why don't they have that so but this one article was very interesting to me because it talks about something that I'm learning about and I'm sorry I'm so white um I'm not really apologizing, but you know what I mean, is emotional labor. So even subtle ways you can like microaggression, you can microaggression it up. Like, like if a black woman's tweeting and she's like, for years, like we've been this, that. And if you're like, what's the, um, where do, where do I find information on that? It's like, you're asking someone to do the emotional labor for you, you know? I'm not quite getting it right, but this article explains it. And I thought it was a really interesting point of view. And if you want to have a discussion, I'll read your emails on air, but I'll read you the article first. Um, but first, I want to give a shout out to an iSeam funner who I met the other night at my show. His name is Nick. And he is trying therapy for the first time this week. Um, and he's been thinking about it forever. It's not like it just came to him and he was like, oh, I think I should go to therapy. Well, I'm going to make a move about it right now. He said he'd been thinking about it for the longest time, putting it off. And I just jumped up and down and started clapping. He did mention it was from listening to I Seem Fun. And I swear to God, that just makes my heart grow 10 sizes, that that anyone would be inspired to look at themselves more deeply by listening to this podcast. So I thought, what a great time to tell you guys about my favorite sponsor. Now, Nick is not going to Talkspace, but that's okay. Um, Talkspace is the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere, anytime. All you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. You can improve your mental health. You can get help. You can feel less alone even if you had trouble making time for it in the past. Can't imagine fitting anything else into your life. Well, that's why... This is amazing. You don't have to go anywhere. There's no commutes. You don't have to sit in front of someone. Not that they'd be judging you, but maybe you need to warm up to the idea of sitting in front of someone and you want to be able to cry without someone looking at you. You know, maybe you need to go to therapy at the time that's convenient for you. Maybe you don't have health insurance. And this is a fraction 
of the cost of regular therapy. And so if you go to talkspace.com slash Jen, T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E.com slash Jen. And if you use promo code Jen, you will get $45 off of your first month. It's unreal. Talkspace.com slash Jen and use offer code Jen to get 45 off of your first month. And again, therapy can be whatever you want. You can dig into your innermost thoughts and childhood memories, but also it can be practical stuff about, you know, life and the challenges you face. Maybe you're having a problem with your boss. Maybe you want to learn how to quit a job. You know, it's licensed online therapy. It's effective. It's convenient. It's affordable. And you get to pick your therapist. You can pick from over 2000. They don't just match you with someone. This isn't an arranged marriage. Okay. And there's a cute little video online and you can watch how it works. This has been featured. Um, sorry, my recorder cut off in the middle of an ad, but let, let, so I'm going to give Talkspace a couple extra things here. So let me, let me explain. This is the, this is what's going to answer some questions for you. Cause I'm, I'm actually on the Talkspace website. Um, it's 80%, typically 80% cheaper than face-to-face therapy. There are several payment options to choose from. 50% of users say they would not have sought therapy if it weren't for Talkspace, which is 100% confidential and private if you choose it to be. Um, they encrypt and securely store all client communication and undergo regular security audits. The therapists adhere to strict professional and ethical codes regarding client confidentiality. Um, Many users report that they prefer Talkspace over traditional therapy, and many show improvement after just a few weeks. The therapists are licensed and experienced professionals who go through a rigorous vetting process. So, yeah. Therapy for how we live today, Talkspace.com slash Jen, J-E-N, and use offer code Jen at checkout. Thanks, Talkspace. So, this is the article I wanted to read, and this is by... Um, I got it on L magazine, L.com, E L L E. And the author is Eric Thomas is his name. So I'm just going to read you what he said. Uh, midway through the second episode of Queer Eye, Netflix's reboot of that show, blah, blah, blah. I mused aloud. I wonder how many of these guys have read the velvet rage. It was a passing notion. I was honestly curious if any of the fab five cisgender gay men, three white, one black man, and a British American of Pakistani descent had read psychologist Dr. Alan Downs' seminal work on queer identity, gay shame, and self-acceptance. It was just a thought. But even as I said it, I clocked something inside of the question that smelled a little bit like shade. Why was I judging these people? Why was I judging these people? Perhaps we were just running on different wavelengths. All of the people on screen were giving me queer exuberant. Think the way Sasha Valore shakes rose petals from her wig, or Nathan Lane says, I've pierced the toast in the birdcage. And I was, at that moment, feeling very queer sedate, merging with queer arch, almost at queer over it. My mood could best be expressed by Beth Leval. Draw, I don't know who these people are. My mood could best be expressed by Beth Levell draw, drawing. Oh God, just write some more. His mood was just like this woman, Beth Levell, when she went, Antarctica, oh please, in the drowsy chaperone, mixed with a supercut of that line from every high school production of the same play. I don't know that fucking play. Oh God, I thought it was smart. 
Anyway, that's a very queer, indulgent way of saying I was tired. Yes, thank you. Straight women are trying to read this. So I wasn't necessarily in the best space to receive what is ultimately a light confection that occasionally chips away at the rock face of toxic masculinity. Whereas the original Fab Five were on a mission to prove their worth through usefulness, this new batch are here to reaffirm their own worth and your worth and also redecorate your home. I knew this much going in. Everyone said they cried watching it, and everyone has had very divisive opinions about Antony, the food expert whose t-shirts unironically reference a little life, Hanya Yanagara's absolutely devastating seminal work in the genre of queer misery. We'll get to queer crying in just a second. But first, for the record, I have absolutely zero qualms with the sophistication of Antony's cooking. The whole idea is to give these dudes accessible recipes that they'll actually make. I identify as queer, very, and medium extra. And even I am sometimes undone by a blue apron meal. Everything is already proportioned for you. What's wrong with you? I say to the mirror, channeling Annette Benning in American Beauty. Y'all need to lay off Antony. If it's so easy to make good guacamole, why are y'all out here at the Chipotle paying extra for it? Anyway, the crying. You're supposed to cry at makeover shows. That's how it works. And you're supposed to cry when you're on reality TV. You cry when you don't get a rose on The Bachelor. You cry when they move that bus on Extreme Home Makeover. The dream is realized or it is crushed and you cry and we cry. And Andy Cohen is appeased and grants humanity another day. But I didn't cry. The show hinges on a kind of magic made possible by queer performance. There are many different ways of being queer, something I desperately wish the show was more invested in. Must everyone be cisgender and cis-presenting? Must everyone be fab? Must everyone fall within a particular size range? But at a basic level, queerness engages with a duality. There is queer exuberance and there is queer concealment. Our history is at once of flash and one of code. This is a self-protective gesture as well as a bit of cultural myth-making. So the premise of fabulousness, which is the calling card that the five men present as they march through the door with the confident strut of Barbara Streisand as Fanny Bryce heading for the ferry, is a sleight of hand maneuver. They go so big so that the makeover subjects can start to investigate themselves on a smaller scale. Call it perhaps queer magic. Queer Eye is more than anything a docu-series about queer emotional labor. The Fab Five approach these men who are, in some way, not living fully realized lives because of deep-seated pain, and they offer to acknowledge it. Downs, in the book The Velvet Rage, writes, Authentic validation inoculates us from the ravages of shame. If we are receiving adequate amounts of authentic validation, then shameful comments or feelings simply have little impact on us. This, I believe, is the project of the show. But Downs is talking about queer lives. And that, as I finished the third episode, was the thing sitting between me and fully embracing the show. I wasn't interested in seeing queer magic worked on straight pain. I have a play running in Chicago right now, Time is on Our Side, which is essentially about queer magic. It's a comedy with a mystery at its core that engages with queer duality and the possibilities for transformation that queerness allows. It exists in a place where queerness is a norm, which is to say it exists in the real world, but it's not engaged with the straight gaze. 
Just before I started watching Queer Eye, I'd been on a phone interview about the play. The interviewer asked me whether I'd set out to be subversive in writing the play. It was a good question. I thought about it and then replied, I wrote a play in which I saw myself. If being visible is subversive, then yes, I set out to be subversive. So the question I asked the series as I watched. Oh, so the question I asked the series as I watched was, is the presence of five gay men on screen subversive or were their presence and their fabulousness and their vulnerability simply in service of slight transformation? Wait, what? Is the presence of five gay men on screen subversive or were their presence and their fabulousness and their vulnerability simply in service of straight transformation? Okay. Were they simply being in service of straight transformation? But he's using too many fucking words. That was important to figure out since whatever fabulousness the five have clearly hard won. Uh, they, in interstitials, give elevator pitches about various moments in their histories, challenges they overcame, oppression they faced. They remind Corey, the Trump supporter, that the president's views are a threat to their rights, but stop short of doing anything as subversive or effective as what Adam Rapone did when faced with the prospect of meeting the vice president. I don't know what that reference is, sorry. Their struggles are not the project of the show, but they are the engine on which the show runs. Downs writes, after name-checking the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, something about growing up gay forced us to learn how to hide ugly realities behind a finely crafted facade. The naked truth about who we are wasn't acceptable, so we learned to hide behind a beautiful image. We learned to split ourselves in parts, hiding what wasn't acceptable and flaunting what was. For many queer people, the merging of the two parts, like the warring sides Hedwig sings about in Origin of Love, is the work of a lifetime, which is why it was so gratifying and so cathartic to see See that work put in service of a queer black person in the fourth episode. We meet AJ, a civil engineer who has a black boyfriend, queer friends, and a messy house. AJ is fine, like doing okay and also fine, but AJ isn't out to his stepmother and did not get to come out to his father before his father died, so there is turmoil. Plus, AJ's queer duality is written in neon letters across his whole life. I am one person at work. I am another person at home. I'm completely different around my family, AJ says. This is a dude with a leather harness in his closet and a seemingly vibrant social life who is still blocked off from the fullness of his life. Enter queer magic, like beans stolen from a neighbor's garden. Fashion expert Tan, Antony, and AJ have a fascinating conversation about presentation and determining how much queer peacocking is comfortable, acknowledging nuance and variation in the queer community. Lifestyle expert Karamo engages with AJ's fears on an obstacle course and then demonstrates peer mentorship between gay black men. Beauty pro Jonathan, ever a delight, takes him to a a black barber and is like, y'all know what, and just as with the straight men, AJ is gradually able to chip away at the barrier between his surface presentation and the river of complex pain that flows beneath. But something astounding clicks into place when the community is able to heal itself. At the end of his episode, AJ throws a party for his friends and invites his stepmother. He steps into his bedroom with her and pulls out a letter he's composed to his deceased father. In the letter, he comes out almost as an afterthought. Indeed, he treats it in the text like something that his father would already know because his father knows his son. That is queer magic. It seems to say, you see all of me because I am here and I don't have to create any facades to make myself visible for you. When AJ reads the words, I am gay, and AJ's stepmom smiles at him widely, openly, calmly, I lost it. She sees him and grins at him, 
That is extraordinary. That is magical. That is subversion with no words. The two collapse on each other in a mix of shared grief, shared relief, and the shared joy of knowing another person truly. What's most striking to me about the series is not so much the subversion of toxic masculinity, but rather the frank acknowledgement of ever-present pain, even in moments of joy. Emotionally, the show is the equivalent of Chipper, conservatively dressed Antony sporting his A Little Life tease without comment. At its best, Queer Eye is able to simply hold an individual's wholeness and sometimes grin at it. That's so rare. On screen, queer pain, like black pain, is often a device used to unlock something in another whose identity shields them from that pain. It's the you is kind, you is smart, you is important technique. AJ weeps. It's almost too much. It's almost overwhelming. There is a dam bursting and it feels intrusive to watch. This to me is the queer truth that is possible in this show. Behind the facade, we are honesty and without reservation, human, Downs writes, and it's past time for us to realize that living the ideal gay life isn't humane in the least. Sometimes, to my mind, the projection of queerness is a series of negotiations using flourish and concealment and code and glittering obfuscation to determine how safe an environment is, not only for the queer body, but for the queer pain. It is dropping references to see who picks them up as a way of taking a room's temperature. I don't know. Uh, I know you didn't know what I was talking about when I mentioned Beth Levell, by the way. Oh my God, that's so funny. That is true. Um, Queer Eye is undoubtedly for straight eyes, but it does give a fascinating glimpse at the magic and mechanics of the performance of a kind of queerness, the simple yet subversive act of learning to be present for one's own joy and pain. So I thought that was interesting. If anyone has more takes, you can send it to iseemfun at gmail.com. Oh, folks. So we have some listener updates. Um, Somebody wanted to get back to me about something we had talked about on the show. So I had said um, on Twitter, like, or a joke of mine where I'm like, somebody using curtains, towels as curtains. And then people on Twitter were like, some people don't have any money. It's like, if you have a, if you live anywhere with a roof over your head, you can do curtains for cheaper than it is even to have a towel. Um, So this person wrote, I listened to your most recent episode, I Can't Talk to Sailors, and the segment on sheets for curtains resonated with me. Seeing it irks me, and while I understand money might be an issue, I think it's a matter of priorities. If someone can afford to eat out or have a night at the bar, they can afford curtains. Winners, TJ Maxx, for example, is cheaper than Walmart and usually sells two panels in one pack versus having to pay for each panel separately. Secondhand is an option too. There's always glue on paper blinds if the tools or someone with the skill and tools to hang curtains aren't available. It's just not possible to cover your window. It's just not impossible to cover your window with anything other than a sheet or a flag. Oh, don't get me started on the flags. One of my former landlords supplied the curtains for his rentals because he was sensitive to the added cost of buying them on top of moving expenses, and he wanted his properties to look presentable. There we go. That is someone who uh, is giving you some real ideas for windows, everybody. Um, Okay. This is an important Hallmark movie update, and they are playing them right now. I believe it's Christmas in July, but I don't have a TV where I'm staying. I mean, it's like a smart TV so I can get Netflix or whatever, But and I'm never just sitting around watching TV and um, the way that I am when I'm in L.A. So, okay. 
Important Hallmark movie update. Follow up to this, both best and worst story ever. Friday, May 24th, the last day of the Hallmark movie shoot. Oh, this is the person who's uh, working in props on the Hallmark movie. I started receiving texts from the designer saying the director wanted me to come in to be in the final party scene as a party goer. As a prop person, I would never consider this. However, I decided to throw out my terms that would make it both entertaining for me and that I thought they would never agree to. I said, I will do it on one condition. I get to say busy businesswoman in a conversation with another actor, and it must be audible. Or one of the other actors must say it to me. Oh my God, this is so funny, because now we all know that that's John Mulaney's thing, not mine. But after a lot of back and forth texting, they said, done. I asked what I'd be required to wear. The answer, busy businesswoman attire. I knew I'd be stuck on set for a miserable night of sweating in winter business attire, being that it was already so hot out, but I had to weigh it against imagining the look on your face when you saw someone say your line in the movie. But dude, you know they're just going to cut the line, right? I mean, I'm just saying. Dude or lady. I decided I owed it to you after all the seasonal affective disorder depression you helped to distract me from this past winter and spring. Aw. I happened to be shopping at a thrift store in Hudson, so was able to quickly grab an appropriate costume. I was told the scene would shoot at 9 p.m., which gave me just enough time to get there from where I was. I was just starting to psych myself up for it when I got another text that they had just cut the next scene, so I had to be there within the hour, which was logistically impossible. I was so bummed that I failed to execute this after all of these negotiations. I might have just potentially blown one of the most hilarious opportunities of my life. Cut to Saturday, June 2nd. I'd finally seen off the last of my upstate visitors, which bled from my birthday week into an extended Memorial Day weekend. I'm alone and binging the last three episodes of I Seem Fun while driving in my car, just enjoying my much-needed solitude when I hear you say you've got an email from a person working on a Hallmark movie. I pull over and ran into my friend's wine shop. What is this? Like the, the greatest? You just have this like, oh, in my friend's wine shop, I pull up to that. It's like, You just have this fabulous life. Um, I pulled over and ran into my friend's wine shop and I was like, holy fuck, Jen Kirkman is about to read my email, I think, at some point in this episode. I mean, she hasn't read it yet, but I'm almost positive she's going to. The best part was that you brought it up and then talked about a dozen other hilarious things like hot yoga and hippies for about 30 minutes. Until I thought it had fallen off your radar completely. I had accepted that your ADD had gotten the best of you, which was fine. I also very much enjoy listening to your tangents. Then you brought it up again, started to read it, lost the printout, got distracted by your laundry delivery, did an ad for Talkspace, circled back to it, got another laundry delivery, made fun of the laundry guy, also hilarious, and then finally finished reading it, declaring your infiltration of the Hallmark movie industry. Your ADD probably just gave me the most exciting and suspenseful 45 minutes of my life. I felt like men probably feel when their favorite team scores a winning touchdown during the last seconds of the game or something to that effect. Oh, I called you a dude earlier. Sorry, lady. I then looked down at my phone to take note of the title and date of the episode. Just when I thought it couldn't get any better, you totally blew my mind, aired on my fucking birthday. Thanks, Jen Kirkman. That was the best birthday present anyone ever unintentionally gave me. Well, happy birthday. And I'm sorry you didn't get to film the Hallmark movie because I was going to say, why won't you tell me what the, can you tell us what the title is anyway, just so that we can see it? Would you email me at um, iseemfun at gmail.com? Okay. And then we have someone who needs advice about a wedding. And I'm going to ask our listeners to write in the advice. I seem fun at gmail.com. 
I titled this wedding. Please don't say my name. I'm a longtime fan of your work. Thank you. I'm a 30-year-old gay man in a long-term relationship over four years. My partner and I were married in March in a small ceremony attended only by ourselves, a close friend who officiated, and another close friend to serve as the witness. Neither of us were interested in a large wedding because we aren't religious and because aside from our immediate families, to whom we're all very close, we are not in close contact with many of our extended family members. Although we love each other and are very committed to our marriage, we also got married largely for the benefits the union affords, health insurance, tax breaks. It was a pragmatic choice as much as a romantic one. We informed our families in advance that we intended to marry privately with little fuss. Initially, they were accepting of this choice. However, in the months since, both my partner's parents and mine have been pushing us to have a more formal ceremony reception. My parents have said that they have been contacted by several family members who were hurt that we didn't have a ceremony. They apparently don't understand that we didn't invite any family members at all. It has gotten to the point where the topic comes up every time I speak to my parents. I come from a fairly affluent family, and my parents have offered to pick up the tab for a reception. On the one hand, I want to say no, because we have both emphatically stated that this is not what we want. On the other hand, I've been wondering whether it would be best to acquiesce in order to keep the peace. But I worry that if I do, I will kick myself for putting someone else's wants and desires above my own. I know that my situation is different from your own past marriage. Yes, it is. But I feel like you would have perspective. Do you or your listeners have any advice? Yes. Look, it it sounds really simple. So it just sounds like you don't want this. So that's the answer. It's not necessarily, you know, I think in life we all, we all can't separate that there's what we want to do and what we should do and what we're going to do. You know what I mean? It's like we have to be able to state our wants and needs and then go, okay, but then how do we move forward? Do we get what we want? And so let's just sit in this right now. You don't want to do this. You don't want your family paying for the reception and making you go through those paces. Because it's not like your family saying, let's buy you dinner. You know, bottles of champagne, whatever you guys want, favorite restaurant, it's on us. We're going to invite like 15 people. And there's not going to be any hoopla. It's just you guys are just our dinner guests and we're just celebrating you. Great. But they're asking you to participate in a ceremony that you didn't want. And it sounds like, you know, your family's affluent and you knew that was an option that they could pay for something, but it sounds like you didn't want all the fanfare. And I think you might, like, if you ever change your mind someday about having one, then do it on like an anniversary. Like maybe you could say something to your parents, like, how about this on our 10 year anniversary, you can throw us a little shindig and maybe we'll renew our vows or something like put it off, you know, put it off and compromise, but, but really figure out, um, it does sound like you would be putting someone else's wants and desires above yours. And they don't get like, they're so lucky. They have a son who has a a beautiful marriage and a partner that makes them happy. And I'm, I'm assuming they love your partner and he's part of the family. That's like more than most people get in this lifetime. And they're being selfish and they're being, they're just not respecting what you want. And it, it should not even be a discussion. And it sounds like they've offered and your answer is no. And the discussion ends there. It's not your answer is no. And then they offer again. It's like, 
please stop offering, you know, and, and then you might have to set a boundary where it's like, you're making me feel bad. You know, I don't want this, you know, I don't want this. This is not how my, my partner and I want to be married, get married or celebrate our matrimony. And you're, you're making me feel bad. Like there's something wrong with me. I don't want it. You know, if they really insist on it, they can throw you a surprise party. I mean, I know that's like everyone's worst nightmare, but it's like, there's a way they can force it if they want to. But you know, just cause someone's paying for something. I mean, it's even worse if they're paying for it cause they get to call the shots. You know, it's not like honey and just do whatever you want. We'll just pay for it. It's like, come on. You know, once you pay for something, especially this is like a good rule of thumb. If you're borrowing, borrowing money for, from people, um, when you borrow money from people or when you let people pay for things, like it's also a tacit agreement that like you kind of have to put up with everything that comes with it. So I think it's just, you're keeping your life a lot simpler. And once you break the dam on one little thing, it's just going to be a series of negotiations, which is the least romantic thing and not fun. It's just going to continue to be a series of negotiations with these people. So I say, stand your ground, don't do it. And if you want to like appease and put it off, just say, how about if we're still going strong on year 10, you can throw us a little, um, anniversary party and we can all make some speeches and whatever, but no, we're not doing a ceremony because that's not what marriage isn't like a little show for us, you know? And it is, I think the most romantic thing you can do is what you said. It's a contract and you're taking care of each other financially and you're, you know, I cannot, I always wanted the kind of wedding that you had. That's what I wanted. And I, I did what my husband's wife, I was going to say his mother wanted Freudian slip. And I was unhappy. I look back at my wedding and I go, I was not happy. I didn't want to be there. And it wasn't just because I didn't feel totally into it. It was like, this isn't what I wanted. You know, um, I would have much rather the town hall thing. I just don't, I perform for a living. I don't want to be up in front of people in my private time. I thought, I thought it was very strange. I still think it's very strange to talk about your private vows and your love for someone in front of family and friends. It's not anyone's fucking business. Um, so that's what I think. Listeners, if you have any advice, um, for our friend here, send it to iseemfun at gmail.com. And in the subject heading, put wedding advice for your listener or something like that. How does that sound? Um, oh, also I had some quotes about people pleasing that I looked up and I actually, uh, wanted to read them to you, sir, who wrote me the email to, um, see if this helped at all. So I will, uh, open those right now. 14 quotes to inspire you to ditch your people pleasing ways. Um, okay. Some of the most successful people know that in order to lead a creative, authentic, and happy life, you have to ditch your people pleasing ways and be yourself. Um, Ed Sheeran says, I can't tell you the keys to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everyone. Eleanor Roosevelt said, you wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do. Paolo Coelho said, when you say yes to others, make sure you aren't saying no to yourself. Lao Tzu said, care about what other people think and you will always be their prisoner. Aesop said, if you try to please all, you please none. Aristotle said, there's only one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. Um, 
there's other people, but they're too annoying. I don't want to give them any credit. So here's another one. Uh, People-pleasing quotes. Eve Ensler said, I finally know the difference between pleasing and loving, obeying and respecting. It has taken me so many years to be okay with being different and with being alive. This is intense. It's not really... People-pleasing doesn't allow you to receive. Oh, that's from a book called The Sacred Bombshell, The Sacred Bombshell Handbook of Self-Love. Um, let's see. We may call it people-pleasing, but it is entirely self-serving because it is really all about keeping myself comfortable. Boiled down, it could be more accurately called me-pleasing. Uh that's from a book, a book called Grace for the Good Girl, Letting Go of the Try-Hard Life. Uh, the biggest mistake we commit in life is to think that others will get affected by our action and we shall leave some effect on them. In this hope, we make others' reactions our priority and fail to perform the task we're supposed to do right at the moment. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that's it. All right. Your advice, I seem fun at gmail.com. And I think that's it. I wanted to say something clever and witty, but that's not going to happen. So until next week, have fun.